Welcome to the Church 214 podcast. We're glad that you've joined us today. We hope that you enjoy today's message. And if you'd like to find out more about our church, please visit our website at church214.org. Well, good morning. My name is Steph Wolf, and I'm standing here today, and I have the privilege to introduce your speaker. As you know, unless you're, today's your first day, we have a team of speakers at this church, and that's something that really drew my family in about five years ago, seeing different speakers, just normal people get up here and talk and bring you the Word of God. And today I have the, the privilege of introducing my husband. This will be the fourth time that he's spoken, but his first time here in our new church building. And since we're talking about expectations, when he told me what he was speaking of, I had a story that God gave me, and when that happens, I immediately put it in my phone. If you saw my phone, I have tons of things written in there, and I very rarely share what those things are. But I knew God said, Steph, you need to share this, and you need to introduce Tim. What I didn't know is that my parents would be here today. And this is this is definitely an honor to my dad and my mom, who put expectations on me growing up. And my mom, my youth group leaders, Sunday school teachers, put one big expectation on me in high school, and that is you're not to be unequally yoked. All that means is you shouldn't marry somebody who's not a Christian. And I'm a firstborn, a rule follower, so that was a rule. I didn't really know why. I knew it'd probably be good, but I just knew that that was something that I would have to do. And I also knew from a young age that all I wanted to do was get married and have kids. When I was in high school and kids were going off to college and people would ask me, well, what do you want to study? What do you want to do? I thought, just want to get married and have kids. And I felt really stupid telling people that. But thankfully, my parents and other friends um, encouraged me and let me know that that was a dream that God put in my heart and that was worthy to pursue. So I went to college and I became a teacher to help me down the road when I had kids. And I was finally teaching first grade and I'd kind of given up dating at that point. I had dated a few boys who loved Jesus but it just never worked, and I kind of said, God, I'm done. I'm going to wait for you to bring me whoever it is. So it was St. Patrick's Day, and I got a phone call from a friend, and she said, Steph, you have to come meet this one of our friend's brothers named Tim. And I thought, well, first of all, you're all at a bar, and that's not really what I like to do. And second, I'm pretty sure that this boy that I meet at a bar isn't going to love Jesus. So I tried to get out of it. Eventually, they talked me into it, and I went down, and I met this boy named Tim. And we actually hit it off and talked the entire night and really clicked. And he asked me out on a date. So the next week, we went on our first date, and I had prayed that whole week that God would give me the courage to tell Tim exactly what I wanted in life and that I would share with him my beliefs. And if he didn't believe that, that I would have the courage to walk away. 
So that first date at Applebee's, we sat there, and I continued to tell him that I go to church every Sunday. I'm in a Bible study. I spend a lot of time with my family. We spend a lot of time at church. And I just really want to get married and be a stay-at-home mom. And he, to all that stuff, said, okay. And I thought, well, okay, we'll see, see where this goes. So we dated for about a year, and he went to church every time we were together. He was involved in everything. He communicated everything, and life was great. And about a year later, we kind of knew that we wanted to get married. And in that, I kind of kept having this thing in my heart that kept saying, but stuff, does he love Jesus? And I knew that he knew who Jesus was, but I wasn't, I didn't know if he had that relationship. So I went to my mom, and I told her what I was feeling, and she just really encouraged me to pray that God would give me direction of, you know, either he will bring Tim to this relationship, or I'll have to have the strength to walk away. So a few weeks went by, and we were all in our living room, and in walks my dad with a huge NIV study Bible under his arm, and hands it to Tim. And I'm going, oh my gosh, what is he doing? And my dad's pretty bold. He will say whatever comes to his mind. And he says, so Tim, have you ever read the Gospels? They're the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they tell the story of Jesus and how he came to earth and lived a perfect life and died for our sins. And Tim said, no, I haven't. And he said, well, why don't you take that and go on back to, your, back to the guest room and read that? So Tim did, and I sat there mortified, just thinking, he thinks we're crazy. Like, Dad, that was the stupidest thing. Like, he's really going to read that, and anything is going to happen. So I finally went to my room, and we didn't have cell phones, so I couldn't text him and say, stop, you don't have to read it, it's stupid. So I probably didn't sleep the whole night, and the next morning got up, and we're having breakfast. And my dad walks back out and says, so Tim, did you get a chance to read that? And he says, yeah, I sure did. And he said, so? And Tim says, I believe. And I remember my mouth just dropping going, what? And my dad said, so you read the Gospels and you believe now that Jesus is real? And he said, yeah, how could you read the Gospels and not believe that Jesus is real? And that day... The Bible became real to me. I had read the Bible, but I really realized that Hebrews 4.12 says that the word is alive and living. And that day, myself and my family had led Tim to that point. We'd done all the right things. But it was the word of God, and it was God's word that touched his heart and changed him. And that afternoon, we talked about what it meant to follow Jesus. And Tim asked Jesus into his heart, and my dad baptized him in the backyard. So, I definitely got my answer that day, and God said, yes, he is the one to marry. So a year later, we were married, and that was 27 years ago. And now I realize that expectation that was put on me was such an answered prayer, because there's no way that we would have made it through the past 27 years and the next 27 years, if God hadn't been in the center of our relationship. 
And even crazier is that 30 years ago, you could have never told me that my husband would be standing on the stage bringing the word of God to a church full of people. So today, I want to introduce my husband, Tim Wolf, to uh, bring you the word on expectations. Oh, boy. Nothing like lighting off the preacher's emotions right before you hand him a microphone, huh? Glad the Kleenex are up here. I'm going to work on collecting myself here for a little bit. Oh, boy. Um, I, I tell you what, so it's been like a year and a half since I've been up here, and there's some strange things that have happened the last couple of times. And I even talked about the last time I spoke. Um, I spoke February 25th, 2020, and I talked about the Sabbath and how we should you know, take that sacredly and spend more time at home with our families during that time. And would you believe it? Two weeks later, we were all sent home to spend more time with our families. And I thought, wow, what a strange coincidence. And then last time, last time I spoke, a year and a half ago, it was April, um, I told that story, you guys may remember that story I told where we had a flat tire and, and I had to call for help and I was kind of embarrassed about it. And this nice guy came and, and tried to help us fix our tire, but I, I beat him over the head with the lug wrench a couple times by accident. <laughs> and, and would you believe two weeks later after that incident, let's take a look at this. We're driving up Knoxville. My wife is driving because she doesn't let me drive anymore because she's afraid I'm going to get into an accident. And there's a few other reasons I'll share later. A tire, a tire, a full wheel comes off of a, of a livestock vehicle and nails the front of our car. I mean, I, my wife never even saw it. Um, she was looking at the sparks on the other side of the road that, that, where the trailer lost it and never saw the tire coming at us. I see a flash right before the front of the vehicle just exploded on us and then the airbags deploy. And, and that, that thing where you can see the license plate like two foot back in there, that's the, that's the steel bumper. That was, that was pushed back in, you know, two, two and a half feet into the vehicle, into the block, completely totaled the vehicle. So, um, so if I'm a little jumpy the next couple of weeks, you guys might understand, might understand why. Yeah, 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 third time's a charm. So I'm, I'm here on the, on the third kind of installment of expectations. And the focus today for me is around friends and family. And in fact, it was great in the sermon, I talk a little bit about that experience, so I won't go into detail there since you since you heard it all much better from my wife. Um, but the reason that expectations are so important is because the relationships we have with our friends and family are so important, and the biggest thing the devil can use to start to create problems in those relationships is expectations, where we start to set expectations for other people that are unrealistic. Now, the great thing is God gives us an incredibly powerful tool to combat that, and that is forgiveness. So a lot of what I'm going to talk about today is illustrating how to balance the expectations, you know, and having healthy expectations and balancing that with forgiveness. So I'll tell some stories about that. And I'll kind of start out, I mean, there was, there was one, um, you know, after 2020, 2020 was hard. I mean, we had, we had all kinds of things happen to us in 2020. COVID happened. You might remember me telling about my my wife had that piece of metal from a root canal stuck in her sinus cavity forever, couldn't figure it out. 2020 was just kind of miserable for us. So my wife and I set this expectation near the end of the year that, well, 2021 is just, it's got to be better. Surely God will make it better for us. And, and we just kind of had this expectation. 
And then I tell you, 2020 hadn't even finished yet, and, and all of a sudden, uh, my wife was out uh, disassembling a vacuum. I was at the hardware store, as I often am. She's disassembling the vacuum. It's kind of one of those ones with a canister on it. She was so proud of herself. Uh, my, my daughter was watching her out the sliding glass door, and uh, she was so proud of herself once she got it all cleaned out. She, she takes a couple steps back, forgetting the vacuum is behind her as she's going to try and show off her accomplishment, trips over the vacuum, I'm sure makes a valiant attempt, backpedaling, backpedaling, back, you know, to try and get to a soft landing, misses, braces with her arm, breaks her arm. So that's, that's how the year started for us. So let's take a look at that. Here's her with that cast. Six weeks later, go to the next slide, six weeks later, looks like the same injury. It is not. It's the same, it's the same hand. But, but six weeks later, we were, she was eating a baked potato. Her broken bone was nearly, nearly um, fixed, you know, healed. And she's eating a baked potato and snaps her thumb tendon while we were down in Florida. And it was kind of a result of the other one, but, but you're going, you got to be kidding. We go to the, you know, the ER because, you know, she can't move her thumb. And are like, well, that's really strange. So we get to the ER. They cut off the cast. They say, yeah, this is going to be a problem. And so anyway, she has surgery, fixes that. Um, shortly after that, uh, she then has more tooth problem, has to have a tooth pulled. And that was a problem. And then that accident occurred. Okay, and so right as I'm starting to make just some very subtle comments about my klutzy accident-prone wife. <laughs> oh, no, not even yet. I forgot about the other one. In August, right as she's healed from everything, she's walking down our back deck steps, looking up, and this is what happened. She fell and broke her leg. That's when I felt very comfortable about saying, oh, my klutzy accident-prone wife. You know, right as she's healing up from that, and then would you believe in December, then of course I had to eat a giant plate of crow, and I and Kip shared it a couple months ago, I tore this pec muscle off of my arm and had to have that surgically replaced. And so this whole time we're frustrated, you know, we're just frustrated this year is actually worse than 2020, it's not meeting our expectations of what we set. And the irony was expectations can often cloud what God is really trying to do in your life. And, you know, the funny thing is, he didn't trip my wife twice. Uh, he didn't, you know, come down with a barbell and, and press on that side and tear that, that peck. He had nothing to do with that. But what he did do was he healed all of those things. And I know I know a lot of people only look at healing as a miracle if it's like instant. But I look at some of this stuff, I go, any healing is a miracle to me. I mean, that, that bones like that will heal. I mean, that... that the surgeon could just get this tendon close with a couple of anchors, tell me, go home for six months, don't do anything stupid, and it's better than the other one? That's amazing. I'm not going to test that, by the way, but, <laughs> but I will take his word for it, and, and it's unbelievable. So it's just kind of an illustration of how we can get these expectations in our head, and it just completely, we can miss what God, what friends, what family are doing in our lives because we're disappointed because they're not meeting our expectations. So let me transfer that a little bit to friends. You know, how does that work with friends? And people, you know, God intends us to have friendships and enjoy those friendships. But people get into trouble when they inaccurately kind of put the expectations of a best friend on every friend that comes in their life. And you can kind of, you can kind of see why. Take a look at some of these quotes I found up here on what society says a friend is. I think they'll come up. Oh, there we go. Thanks. So a true friend 
is someone who sees the pain in your eyes while everyone else believes the smile on your face. That's a nice friend. A real friend is the one who walks in when the rest of the world is walking out. That's a good friend as well. I love the last one. A friend is someone who never leaves you out. You are always included when you're with them. And a friend is there for you, for you, no matter what. I mean, that's kind of what society, I would say, influenced by the devil, kind of tells us. I mean, who doesn't, who doesn't want a friend, a bunch of friends like that, right? I mean, that's the kind of friends we all want because that's what society says we should have. Now, let me flip this around a little bit. Let's put the shoe on the other foot. How many of you are willing to sign up to 100% of those expectations 100% of the time for everybody that calls you a friend? And you start to see, oh, it's kind of maybe unrealistic sometimes, the expectations we have on friends. So let's take a look at what the Bible says about friendship. It's, it's pretty simple, actually. Proverbs, you know, from Solomon, wounds from a sincere friend are better than many kisses from an enemy. So fl flip back for me, Andrew. Look at that, I think that second one. Yeah, a real friend is one who walks in when the rest of the world walks out, maybe to give you a kick in the butt for something you did, the reason everybody's walking out. So sometimes... A friend may be somebody who challenges you. So go back forward. Look at these next two in combination. The first one's Ecclesiastes. This is Solomon as well, the advantages of friendship. And then the next one's a whole thousand years later from Paul. This is Ecclesiastes 4.9. Two people are better off than one, for they can help each other succeed. If one person falls, the other can reach out and help. But someone who falls alone is in real trouble. Then, then take a look at what Paul says in Colossians' letter to a Colossians. Make allowances for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. So if you, if you kind of look at that, the Bible puts the onus on us to have friends and accommodate friends and forgive friends. Society tends to put the expectations on the friend. So all of a sudden it says, no, it's, it's like a privilege to have a friend for some reason, society says. And, and to be your friend, they have to meet these certain expectations. Otherwise, they're no friend at all. But the reality is Solomon twists that around. And he's basically saying, look, you know, if you were to rank friends good, better, and best, Solomon would say, it's better to have some good friends than no friend at all, even if they don't meet your expectations of a best friend. Because the reality is many of us are likely you know, going to have like one, maybe two best friends in our life. And, and you know, you're probably thinking of who that is now. I mean, it's somebody you spent a ton of time with. I, I remember mine was a childhood friend. We grew up, you know, second grade, became good friends in fourth grade, better friends in junior high and best friends in high school and college. We walked beans together. We hunted together. Um, we played basketball together, of which he would 100% of the time beat me. And then we would play tennis together, and I would 100% of the time beat him. Um, we would chase girls together. Um, th there was one time we even dated the same girl at the same time. And I know that was, it was confusing to us too, believe me. <laughs> but she just kept inviting us over and we kept going and hey, we were best friends. So we just kind of rolled with it. That's not my wife, by the way. We, we did move on from that. As you can imagine, that doesn't work out for very long. But you know, it's those kind of experiences you might have with a best friend. But then eventually our lives, you know, took different paths. We moved away. We were gone for almost a decade. So the question is then, should I put those kind of expectations on any new person, any new friend that comes in my life? 
And I think that's where a lot of people start to have trouble with friendships, is they put those, they want that again. But the reality is that's probably just going to happen once or twice. And the devil's probably telling you, well, you, you need to strive for that. Um, the reality is you need to treasure the friendships for what it is and not get frustrated for what it is not. So as I, as I kind of wrap up friends a little bit, hopefully just with that, you know, rethinking your expectations about what, what you expect out of your friends, I just want to challenge you, you know, look at those friendships if you've got some frustrations in some friendships and analyze those and analyze your expectations in that friendship. And is there a chance that your expectations may be unrealistic, maybe more what the devil has influenced the society to say a friend should be versus what the Bible uh, says? And, and are you trying to put your onus on the friend to live up to some expectation versus putting the onus on you uh, to develop that friendship? Because as Solomon said, hey, two people are better off than one for they can help each other succeed. So it's better to have some good friends than no friends at all. So I'll kind of wrap that up, and I'll tie some of that in as I start to talk with family, since this is about friends and family. Family is a lot more complicated than, uh, than friends are. Um, big difference with families, you know, friends, you can migrate as you move, you can make new friends and so forth. Family, you're kind of stuck with the family, you know, that's, that's where God puts you. Um, the challenge about talking about expectations around a family is I can guarantee you, you know, across this audience, we have all had completely different family experiences. Some may have a full extended family of Christian believers, multi-generational, you can have, you know, you can be laying hands on people, healing, all kinds of stuff at Thanksgiving. Uh, you, might, you might be in a mixed family where one family's, uh, you know, as really strong with their walk with Jesus, one's maybe not so strong with their walk with Jesus. Uh, you may be the, the very first Christian in your family, in, in generations. So, you know, I think the key is you may look at some of those situations and go, oh, well, I wish I was there. You know, if you, maybe you were the first one, you go, oh, I wish I had more Christians in my family so I could, you know, talk with them about it. Um, but the irony is there may be some folks who have, you know, multi-generationals of Christians. <laughs> there may be an evangelist going, I wish I was in a family that had no Christians so I could get them all converted too. The key is, you know, God put you there for a reason. And, and you need to just embrace that and go from there. So I just want to give you, I talked a little bit about forgiveness, which is a key principle that I'll, I'll kind of wrap up with. But I want to give you some basic expectations with your family as well. They may help you, you know, as a Christian in, in interacting in, in any of the cases. And the first one is, if they're already Christians, the simple expectation is how do you help them with their walk with Christ? Because it will inevitably ebb and flow just like yours will. And, you know, a lot like Solomon said, you know, it's two is better than one. Um, having a family member like that to help walk you through, you know, help you through your troubled times and you help them through their troubled times is, is a key. The second one is if they are not a Christian, uh, if your family's not a Christian, how can you be a light to them? And I'll explain kind of what that means, because it's, it's kind of a nebulous term, but Jesus does a pretty good job in, uh, in Luke 8, 16. Let's, let's pull that up. He says, hey, no one, you know, so this is Jesus talking to the disciples about kind of this revelation of what, what he was doing, and, and uh, he's saying no one lights a lamp and then hides it in a clay jar or puts it under a bed. Instead, they put it on a stand so that those who come in can see the light. So, you know, essentially what that means is once you're enlightened to what Jesus has done for us, 
you know, the expectation God now has on you is for you to light your light and light that path for other people as well. And, you know, and it could look a lot different, um, you know, depending on your family styles. So mine, mine grew up is pretty much small town, Midwest, Methodist uh, family. That was kind of my whole, uh, whole group. And, you know, so we're talking pews, hymnals, um, choir with the piano, guy in a fancy robe giving the, giving the sermon, not dressed like this. Um, no hands in the air, no dancing. You know, that was kind of the, the style of my family. Well, fast forward, you know, my wife kind of gave the testimony. I, I meet her, I go to their church, and it's a progressive non-denominational church. So it is like full band, loud music, passionate sermon, much like here, here, here in here. And I was floored. I mean, I was floored when I went to the first one. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. This is kind of like what I saw Sunday mornings when we wouldn't go to church. I'd flip through looking for something, and I'd see something like that on Sunday mornings. And it's what my family affectionately referred to as holy rollers. <laughs> so, so next thing I knew, you know, I'm dating a holy roller and rolling with, uh, <laughs> rolling with the holy roller family. But Steph gave, gave a great testimony. You know, how, so you all know how that landed then, you know, and then I'm up here. I think then the key was they had their light on and enlightened me in my path. And I'm glad, I'm glad I didn't have to tell the whole story. That would have been really tough. <laughs> the key is then, you know, what do I do, you know, with my family? And that's, uh, that can be tough. Um, you know, for me, it was gradual. Um, you know, my family, this small town Midwest background, I'm, I'm not going to be able to go in and start laying hands on people for healing or saying, you know, hallelujah, praise the Lord every couple of minutes in a conversation. It's not going to go over well. I'd not be invited back to the next family Thanksgiving probably. But what it does look like is, is offering to say grace at dinner. You know, mentioning that you are going to church, talking about a sermon that you heard or a verse that you heard uh, or a story that you heard about God or Jesus or something at church or, or a story about some, you know, something um, that somebody's going through that God helped them. Uh, inviting them to church is a huge step as well. That, that's what turning your light on you know, looks like. And even Paul, you know, great evangelist, and he was super aggressive. Even he knew how to tailor his approach. Let's take a look at 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 4. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, because, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. So even Paul knew how to tailor his approach. He didn't always go in with a flamethrower. You know, his, his, his light wasn't a flamethrower trying to burn a bunch of people. Um, maybe the flamethrower approach would work with your family, and please video that if it, if it does. I would love to see if you can go into a Midwest Methodist and start laying hands on healing and see how that works out for you. But Paul realized that it was important to meet people where they were at and start the journey of lighting the path toward Jesus from there. So hopefully you can all understand that there's not a specific expectation for every situation. You kind of have to understand where you're at and you, you need to understand where other people are at so you can start to light your path in that direction. Now, as you light that path, 
you know, and, and they talked about mine as my, you know, path grew a little bit. Um, I'll just say be a little bit cautious now about what, you, what expectations you set on the people on the path that you're lighting. Um, they're going to have ups and downs too. And if you get frustrated with that and maybe even back away, that's the last thing. Uh, you know, it's the first thing the devil would want to do, but the last thing God wants to do. The key is never give up. As you're lighting the path, if people go on and off the path, never give up. And there is a great, great parable. I chose not to, not to put it up here because it's really long, but I'll, I'll paraphrase it for you. It's Matthew 20, 1 through 16, if you want to read this later today. But and I tell you what, this, this verse used to make me so mad when I read it uh, because I didn't understand it, and I'll tell you why. And, it, and if you don't understand it too, maybe this will enlighten you on it. Um, it's the vineyard workers, and you've got the vineyard owner and some workers. Uh, the, the vineyard owner goes out in the morning, and he goes into town, and he collects some workers who are willing to come out the vineyard and help harvest. So that's early in the morning. It's not enough workers. So he goes back into town at 10 a.m., finds some more people standing around. He's like, why aren't you working? Well, nobody's hired us yet, they say. So he hires them and, and says, I'll, I'll give you fair wages to come out and, and work all day. Then he goes out at noon. Then he goes out at three. And then he goes out at five. And every time he kept finding more people standing around. And he'd say, why aren't you working? Well, nobody's hired me yet. And, you know, in, in my mind, I'm going, where were they? Were they sleeping in at the bar? What, what exactly were they doing? Here's, here's what always made me mad about this this verse until I understood it, was at the end of the day, he lines them all up and the, the vineyard owner gives them the exact same pay. And I thought, what? What? How is that possible? I'm, a, I'm an Enneagram 8, which is like hard work, fairness. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. What kind of precedence are you setting by doing that? You know, they can just show up in the last hour and get the full day's pay. Everybody's going to do that. What kind of business are you running? And, and the reality was he's not running a business. Um, this is, the, the vineyard owner finally says, well, look, it's my money. I can do what I want with it. The analogy is, it's God's heaven. He can do what he wants with it. So if he chooses to accept somebody late in their life, even though they've led a difficult life, maybe even an evil life, he can choose to do that if they accept Jesus as their Savior. Once I understood that, I had a little bit more latitude with that that verse. But you can see, I mean, when you're looking at it as, as a, a layman, I guess, you'd go, that's, that's ridiculous. But that's why you don't give up on anybody. Now, the, the, biggest, the biggest part, um, and the third one I, I hit on earlier, I'll circle back to, is patience and forgiveness. And it's really around forgiveness. And this is so critical with family and friends and um, as well as, as, um, as your spouse and your kids, because that's, that's who's closest to you, who, who you really want to um, have as, you know, as, as your closest relationships. Um, forgiveness is all over the Bible, but my favorite verse here is when Peter is interacting with Jesus, and this is in Matthew, and I think Peter's pretty frustrated uh, in this. This is Matthew 18, 20, 21, 22. Um, so I'm sure the situation is people are sinning against Peter. They continue to do it. And he's getting really frustrated. And Peter goes to Jesus and asks, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? And, you know, because seven's commonly used in the Bible. And I'm sure he's assuming Jesus is going, oh, no, no, that seven doesn't apply there. You know, three or four is good enough. <laughs> but Jesus goes the exact opposite direction. He goes, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. 
I cannot imagine how frustrated Peter was at that point. But Jesus goes on to say, because that's what your father does to you. You know, and, and we don't even necessarily know how many times God has to forgive us. We know a lot of the times he has to forgive us, but we don't even know the extent of the times he has to forgive us. So let's carry that into kind of spouse and kids. Um, and, you know, and this is so critical to nurturing loving relationships. So for kids, and I'll, I'll kind of focus in on, on little kids here first. And, and I'll tell you, spouses and kids, completely different um, approach here. I'll be, I'll be upfront with that. Kids, it's good to set some expectations, but, but consistent with God's approach, you know, biblical expectations. What can so often deviate us is where we get these worldly expectations, we start to apply those to our kids, and we want perfect kids, and we want, and then, then the expectations tend to be what we want for our kids, potentially not in alignment with God wants for our kids. So, I think it's really important, especially as parents, to make sure that you guys are on the same page with expectations on kids and have discussions about that and make sure they're biblically-based expectations um, and then have a tremendous balance of forgiveness you know, in that process because they're going to fall short of likely whatever expectation you may set, whether it's reasonable or unreasonable, um, and you've got to have that balance of forgiveness to, to make sure that you can maintain that relationship. So kids could be, a, you know, a, a whole multi-week series. So I'll kind of leave it at that just to, for you maybe as spouses to think about those expectations for kids. Um, for spouses, yeah, this is, a, this is always a sensitive one. Expectations for spouses, completely different ballgame here. If, if you somehow think you're going to outline some expectations and sit down with your spouse and, and run through those, you might, be on a, you might get in trouble. Um, once you're married, you become one. A marriage is a partnership, and Paul says in Ephesians, we submit to one another. And practically, what does that mean? Well, it means that expectations not already outlined in the Bible should be discussed and agreed. So this is where it gets a little sensitive. This will be like, oh, really? Do I have to really talk about that stuff? And I say, you don't have to discuss the ones in the Bible. That should be clear. You shouldn't have to rehash the Ten Commandments. Right? You shouldn't have to have a discussion around your position on murder or adultery or all those other things. You know, hopefully you hash that out in premarital counseling. <laughs> but what I'm talking about are the really sensitive ones. Um, the biggest three things that I would say the devil uses to get to put a wedge in the sacred bond of marriage is money, intimacy, and communication. So if you look up a lot of research, those are the big three things that, that divorce attorneys, divorce counselors... Um, talk about are these are the big three things that pop up. So, you know, these are often the things that because we may have unrealistic expectations around, you know, with each other or around a situation in those areas, that's what tends to lead to relationship issues. So, I mean, the good thing is one of those, communication, can help solve the other two. And, and so, you know, one of the things my wife and I did um, years ago, we started with little kids, and it was really helpful, was we actually did couch time. And uh, I can't remember what the, what the study was, but you guys may remember that. Um, but it's where you sit down on the couch, I think it was like 10 minutes is all. And, and the kids have to respect that, so you start to teach them some separation, that they are actually number two, not number one, that the spouse is number one. And so it starts to, starts to help them realize they're not the queen or the king either. 
Um, and it gives you time to start to, one, communicate, and two, talk about some of these areas where maybe your expectations are getting a little bit out of alignment. Um, you know, and as we got older, we've kind of continued that. We don't do it necessarily every day because I, you know, travel around and stuff, but, but we still have patio time. I mean, that's one of the, one of our favorite times together. We'll sit in the patio and we'll, I mean, it's no longer 10 minutes, it's like an hour, maybe two hours. We'll just sit there and, and talk and those are some of the most powerful uh, times in a marriage you can have. Um, but I get it with little kids, that, that's not possible. But if you can focus on the 10 minutes at first, that's going to be really important for you to do. Now, even, even with all that said, with all the discussion around trying to keep your expectations in alignment and making sure you don't have too high of expectations for folks, there will be times when you may have completely realistic, completely reasonable expectations and somebody's still going to fall short. And it's really important there to bring in forgiveness. And, and I'll tell you a story where I felt I just got a little bit short of an expectation that my wife had. And now that, now that you know her, she was up here. So now you'll appreciate this story a little bit more. So we, we were out in, living out in Tucson at the time. And we had three little kids. We had four, seven, and, and nine-year-olds. So, you know, really active. We were getting ready for church one morning, one Sunday morning. Um, and it's, it's just chaos as usual. So I, I get it with all the little kids, the chaos that ensues in the morning, especially trying to get to church. And somebody got, you know, my wife had a white blouse on. And somebody got, you know, some sort of food or handprint or whatever on this. But we're already running late. But, but she insisted she's going to get that stain off. So she goes to the laundry room, gets the stain off. You know, kids are running around. So she calls the sheriff in, which was me. You know, I, I start to crack the whip, line the kids up. We go out. I grab a cup of coffee, and I grab the last lid on, you know, the, that we had for the coffee cups, thinking while I'm driving, I'm the one that should get the lid. This <laughs> didn't work out well later. And uh, so she finally goes in, gets this white blouse kind of cleaned off. But then, then now she's got to iron it because, you know, when it gets wet, it wrinkles. So she's in there ironing it. And we're you know, running late. And so she comes out and, you know, with a coffee cup pointing. And I'm like, you know, I got the last lid. I'm sorry. <laughs> and so, so she gets in with the coffee cup. And we're heading down the hill. And we get to this stop sign. Now, my recollection's a little bit different than hers <laughs> on this. I was quite positive. There was another car came up close to the same time. They were on the right. They, they potentially would have had the right of way if it would have been a tie, but I was quite confident I beat them by at least three-tenths of a second. <laughs> but there was a little bit of confusion at the time, and so I thought, well, I'm an Enneagram 8. I'm going to clear up this confusion. So what I did, right as my wife expected me to stop to drink, uh, so she could take a drink of her coffee, I hammered it. <laughs> so... So I punched it, and not even thinking, obviously, and oh boy, she goes, darn you! She had already been steaming, but it wasn't the word darn, it was the big D word, the one that holds back water. And if you, and if you know my wife, you know, like, she never cusses, never. And, and to the three little kids in the back, they had never heard their mom cuss before and yell it out. So I did a, I did a quick glance in the in the back just kind of judge their reaction and they're both like <laughs> the girls are sitting there my son's leaning over the back seat going what happened so you know of course what does a good husband do we get out our shovel and make the hole just a little bit deeper yep 
you know, by mounting, trying to mount a defense to our ridiculous actions. So, so the, the most brilliant thing I could come up with at the moment was, I go, but he didn't go. As if that was justification for it. Well, I tell you what, that, that went over a lot better in my head than in reality. Because that, that pretty much, she blew a gasket at that point, and she lit me up. And deservedly so. So then I look, then I look in the back seat at the kids to kind of get their reaction on this scenario. And uh, you know those, you know the people, the look on people's faces when they're watching a horror movie and the main character does something really stupid and they're about to be brutally murdered? That's the look that the kids had on their face at that time. They knew dad had screwed up big time. So after, after that, I'll, I'll just call it kind of a learning moment as she kind of wrapped up her learning educational moment for me. I knew I had to try and lighten the load a little bit, you know, kind of get it calmed down. So I made, it, again, a valiant attempt to try and lighten things up. And, and would you believe that shovel just seemed to be stuck in my hand at that point? So, so I, lean, I look over at her and, you know, at the stain, and I say, well, honey, I don't think anybody's going to notice that when we get to church. And, well, that was a complete lie. It was this massive coffee stain. And I have no idea why I would have thought that. And what I, what I didn't know at the time was coffee stains get worse as they dry. And I got to learn that over the next two minutes of, of driving. So, and of course, as, you know, then I'm profusely apologizing. Finally, I came to my senses, offering to go back. She, you know, we're already, you know, plenty late at this point. So, and wouldn't you know, the church lighting just accentuated that coffee stain. And, and you know, throughout the service and, and afterwards during the mingling, I mean, there was nothing short of, of a dozen people mentioned the coffee stain. And I had to explain that the whole time, how my, you know, crazy wife decided to take a drink right as I announced I'm... <laughs> no, I was, I was a lot better in explaining it. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I used to actually be 6'4". I walked out of church that day, 5'11", and I've never gotten that back. That's, I just, just every time I had to explain it. So, so there's a lot you can take out of that story, uh, you know, give your wife the last lid and throw in the white towel earlier, but I want, I want that to resonate with you because you're going to have these times where you might have this very reasonable expectation on somebody and they're still going to fall short of it and you need to forgive them. Now, eventually my wife did forgive me of that, um, but I will say technically, go, go back to that, Andrew. Technically, according to Jesus in Matthew 18.22, I actually have 76 more times I could do that and she would still <laughs> need to forgive me. There we go. Yeah, no, but the truth is in 15 years, I haven't had the courage to do it even one more time. So we've, we've, I've been a little bit, I've learned, I've learned. So anyway, there are going to be times where you need to forgive people, even if you do set reasonable expectations. Um, and that's, and the reason is that's what God does for us. You know, he has and sets pretty reasonable expectations and we often fall short and he forgives us for it. So my wrap up, um, I just encourage you, you know, to go home today. One, think about friendships you have where you may have some frustration and think about those expectations you have in those friendships. And, and two, open a discussion with your spouse, you know, around expectations, around those sensitive areas uh, and get alignment on those expectations and it will, it will do wonders for your, for your marriage and for your kids growing up. Uh, because really, I mean, don't we all wish that people had reasonable expectations of us? And, and even if we fall short, that they'd forgive us. And if that's what we hope others you know, do for us, isn't that exactly what we should be doing for other people? 
So with that, let me, let me wrap up in prayer. Lord, I just want to thank you for forgiving us, for all that you do, you know, all the times that we screw up and you forgive us, and the times we know about and the times we don't know about, and frankly, it doesn't really matter because you forgive us for all of them. And Lord, I just ask that you, you know, put on our hearts this week to think about those expectations, think about what are good biblical expectations around our friends, our family, our spouses, to make sure that society's not influencing them in the wrong direction and actually hindering a relationship you want us to enjoy and have. And Lord, just, just pray that you're with us this week and ask for your continued forgiveness. Amen.